You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening. Provost, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished colleagues, friends, you're all extremely welcome uh, to the Edmund Burke Lecture Theatre for this annual Edmund Burke Lecture. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is our Institute of Advanced Studies in the Arts and Humanities. And this evening is a very special uh, evening uh, for us. Uh, this is our fourth uh, annual Edmund Burke Lecture. Uh, Dame Honora O'Neill uh, gave the first one, uh, Roy Foster gave the second one, and last year at uh, Robert Fisk took us all to the front line in Syria. Um, Again, they've all been very different and extremely uh, uh, memorable. Uh, Many of you will, of course, know that Edmund Burke, uh, a graduate of, of Trinity, was throughout his life concerned with the exercises of the use of power. As a statesman, political theorist and philosopher, he made it his lifelong concern to look at questions of what moral codes should underpin the social order and the responsibilities of citizens. And I think tonight, Margaret Macmillan's lecture, if Burke was here, I think he's going to be really pleased with what he's about to hear, um, because she will look at the impact and the legacy of many powerful uh, and worldwide uh, leaders who have really left their mark on history, uh, for better or worse. Her talk could not be more uh, relevant um, uh, as we look at figures, uh, or as she will look at figures, uh, like Lenin. And here we are in uh, in 2017 uh, commemorating uh, the Russian Revolution of uh, 1917, uh, a revolution that really changed the course of uh, modern history. Her talk will also uh, look at other contentious leaders and thinkers and uh, people who really changed history uh, forever. Margaret Macmillan probably doesn't need much introduction from me, but for those of you who haven't had uh, the opportunity uh, uh, to meet her or read her works, she is a professor of international history at the University of Oxford and the former warden of St Anthony's uh, College. She's recently uh, retired. Uh, Many, many books to her name. Uh, One of my favourites is Women of the Raj, Uh, There's a wonderful uh, uh, book, uh, Paris uh, 1919, Six Months That Changed uh, the World. Uh, And for this, she was the first woman to win the Samuel Johnson uh, Prize. Nixon in China, Six Days That Changed the World. I was going to say it was six months for Paris and six days for Nixon. I hope I... <laughs> um, uh, those, uh, the Uses and Abuses of History, her most recent book is The War uh, That Ended uh, Peace. Now, 
Margaret uh, Macmillan's CV is very long, and I'm not going to go into all of the boards that she, she sits on. Um, uh, take it from me. She's a hugely, hugely uh, a distinguished uh, historian and public intellectual, and is somebody that we're absolutely delighted is here uh, with us this evening in, in, in Trinity. I don't want to keep you much longer. I do, have, however, have a few uh, housekeeping uh, uh, items. Could I please ask you to put your phones on silent? Please, phones on silent. But if you want to join the conversation uh, on Twitter, please do so using the hashtag uh, HubMatters. We also uh, will have an opportunity for some questions with Professor McMillan at the end. Um, we'll have a couple of roving uh, mics, so if any of you would like to ask questions, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do so uh, uh, after the talk. Um, I also would uh, just uh, remind you that we will podcast the lecture, so if you want to listen to it again or maybe a friend who couldn't be here this evening, uh, uh, we can uh, obviously you can share the podcast uh, uh, with them. And then just last but not least, we run about 250 events in the Hub, and you're all very welcome at any of them. And uh, uh, obviously tonight's a very special event, uh, but do look at our website and join our mailing list uh, because it really is fabulous to have the audience that we have here this evening, but we'd love you to come uh, to other uh, events as well. So without further ado, if I could invite uh, Professor Margaret McMillan uh, to give uh, uh, a lecture on Sometimes It Matters who is in power. Margaret. Well, I'd like to thank Professor Olmeyer for that extremely kind introduction. The trouble was when they're so kind, I start thinking, oh, I'd like to hear this lecture myself <laughs> until I remember that I'm doing it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be here in Trinity College, Dublin. And I have myself a long connection with another trinity in Toronto, at the University of Toronto, where there is also a much younger trinity college. And I was there as a student and, and then came back as its provost. So I have at least a partial uh, trinity connection, not, not, not so much with you. I find it very interesting at the moment to talk about power, who's in power, and whether the individual matters. Now, for a long time there's been a view that the individual doesn't matter much in history. E.H. Carr, the British historian, talked rudely about what he called the bad King John theory of history, that what matters in history is the character and behavior of the individual. And what he argued, of course, was it didn't matter at all, that what mattered in history were the great forces, great forces of economics, of society, of ideology, of politics, of such things as demography or, or resources. And I think in the past decades in history, we've seen a lot of attention paid to those forces. Carr himself has been very influential, but earlier on, so of course, was Karl Marx, who saw history as a movable working out of a preordained pattern in history. And I think there has been a tendency among historians to look at what they call the objective forces, the underlying forces, and see the individuals perhaps as so much froth on the surface, except I think, and perhaps it's true particularly of 20th century history, we keep coming back to the individual. We keep wondering about why, why certain people came into power, what it meant, and what they did. Of course we have to admit 
that the forces in history matter. We can't ignore the fact, for example, that the British Isles are the British Isles. It has affected their history and their geography. Ireland can't ignore the fact that it has tended for much of its history to be next door to a much more powerful country. Canada has to accept the fact that it lives next door to the United States. Such things affect us, such things affect our political development and our social development. And so I would not in any way say that these forces don't matter in history. Of course they do. And of course, they force, they, they shape the individual. We are all products of our own personal histories, but we're also products of the histories of our societies. We are affected by the institutions, the ideas, the values with which we grow up. And so anyone in history, even the most powerful, are products of a particular time and a particular era. And they do reflect often those times, those values, those positions. But we cannot, I think, get away from the accidents that put certain people in certain places at certain times. You think of Napoleon, for example, who would not, I think, it is fair to say, have risen to be anything above a colonel in the pre-revolutionary French armies. He didn't come from a grand family. He did not have a big private income. His family came from Corsica, which was on the very fringes of French society. He managed to get to a military college Really, I think, only because the family managed to invent a few noble ancestors. We had to have a certain number of nobility in your background before you could go to military college. And so Napoleon, before 1789, would have been unremarkable for all his evident talent. What the French Revolution did is make it possible for him to rise, and it made possible for many of his great generals to rise. Many of Napoleon's generals came from similarly humble backgrounds, even more humble than his, and it was the French Revolution because it tore apart French society, because it destroyed the old institutions of French society that made that possible. And Edmund Burke, and I felt I should refer, of course, to Edmund Burke, foresaw this. He wrote, revolutions allow the rise of strong leaders. Out of revolutionary turmoil, he said, some popular general who understands the art of conciliating the soldiery and who possesses the true spirit of command shall draw the eyes of all men upon himself. Armies will obey him on his personal account. There is no other way of securing military obedience in this state of things. But the moment in which that event shall happen, the person who really commands the army is your master. The master, that is little, of your king, the master of your assembly, the master of your whole republic. And this was long before Napoleon had risen to power. And so it is a very interesting, I think, guess, um, a very informed guess about what might happen. And as it turned out, he was right. And so I think we do, when we look at history, we ask, what would have happened if Napoleon had never lived and the French Revolution had never taken place, if that conjunction of events had not made it possible for Napoleon to rise to power? Because it wasn't just the French Revolution that made France so powerful in Europe. It was also Napoleon. Napoleon was in many ways, a dreadful man. He was very reckless of the lives of his soldiers. He was someone who killed more Europeans than anyone was going to kill until, of course, the 20th century. But he was a great general. He was a great organizer. He was a great strategist. He was a great di diplomatist, but diplomatist. And I think without that particular man, with his particular talents, at the head of a revolutionary France, France would not have come to dominate Europe in the way it did. And we can do this in the 20th century. What would have happened if Hitler had died in the trenches, as he very nearly did in the First World War? Would anyone else have taken Germany down that particular path, 
to its eventual doom and the doom of most of Europe in 1945. What would have happened if Winston Churchill had been killed on Fifth Avenue in the late 1920s when he was knocked down by a car? I think history might have turned out very differently. What would have happened if Joseph Stalin had died of his appendix operation in 1921? This was in the middle of the Russian Civil War. Appendix operations in those days were, in fact, very dangerous. He received minimal medical attention. He could easily have died. And I'll come back to these people because I think the fact that they lived actually made a difference. What would have happened, this is my last counterfactual, but we we can all think of many, if in the summer of 1914 the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's chauffeur had not taken the wrong turn in Sarajevo? He might have survived. And without the Archduke's assassination, Austria-Hungary would not have had the excuse that it had been looking for to try and destroy Serbia. So one wrong car turning may have determined the war that broke out in Europe in August 1914. Historians have always, I think, understood the importance of the individual, but it is, I think, interesting that social historians, historians, in other words, who have written about societies, who have written about the big forces in history, a number of them have come to write about individuals. I'm thinking of wonderful historians like Ian Kershaw, who started out as a social historian of Nazi Germany, who wanted to describe the society of Weimar Germany and Nazi Germany, and looked, therefore, at social attitudes, social classes, the components of that society, and ended up writing what I think is the best biography of Hitler. And he kept finding that he couldn't really deal with Nazi Germany and leave Hitler out that Hitler represented particular forces in German society, but he also took them in a particular direction. Stephen Kotkin started out as a social historian of Soviet Russia. His first book was on a study of Magnetisk, I can never pronounce it, Magnetoskorsk, which was purpose-built by Stalin as part of his crash industrialization. He's now partway through a multi-volume biography of Stalin, because he argues that you can't understand what happened in the Soviet Union without understanding Stalin. Political scientists, uh, whose historians sometimes think discover things that we've known for a very long time, but put them into a much more shapely theoretical form with wonderful graphs and wonderful illustrations, political scientists are now beginning to discover the issue of leadership. I've just been reading a book called Why Leaders Fight, which argues, and this will not come as a surprise to historians, that you need to understand, as the authors say, the individual and their assumptions at moments of decision. And this book, again, I think, is, it shows something of, of a trend in what is happening in history. And so my argument is very simply that a lot of the time it doesn't matter what individuals are doing. A lot of the times we are simply part of great trends and great currents. But sometimes, at key moments, it matters who's alive who is able to write and speak, and importantly, who has enough power or influence to push events in one way or another. In August 1914, and I'll return to this, someone had to sign the mobilization orders for Germany or Austria-Hungary or Russia for the whole process to start, and that was one man in each country. The British decision to go to war in 1914 was a different one. It was a collective cabinet decision, and so was the French one. But in Russia... In Austria-Hungary, in Germany, the final arbiter, the final signature that had to be on that piece of paper was that of the ruler. And so I think it really does matter who was in power in the summer of 1914. Now, we all know that the First World War broke out for all sorts of other reasons. And you can look back into the history of Europe before 1914 
and you can say, well, look, we, the war was bound to happen. I'm not sure it was, but you can certainly see forces pushing Europe in the direction of war. The trouble when you have a great catastrophe like the First World War, you tend to think it had to have been foreordained, that the causes must have been so strong, the reasons for it must have been so strong that it was bound to happen. And you can certainly find lots of things in Europe to support that sort of argument. Forces of nationalism, irreconcilable nationalisms, nationalisms which regarded other nations as their enemies, a very dangerous admixture of social Darwinism which divided the human race, so-called, up into separate races which were said to be like creatures in a state of nature bound to fight each other. And so you would get French professors, French soldiers saying, we have to fight the Germans, they are our hereditary enemies. It's a struggle for survival, very, very Darwinian. And you would get exactly the same sorts of things being said in Germany, both about the French and about the Russians. And so, yes, you can see reasons why Europe might have gone to war. There was also an arms race. There was a race for colonies, which had very nearly caused war on several occasions. Interestingly enough, not between the sides who eventually fought. The French and the British very nearly went to war in 1898. The British and the Russians very nearly went to war in 1905, when Russian ships sailing out of the Baltic on their doomed voyage halfway around the world where they were going to be sunk by the Japanese, mistook trawlers off Hull for Japanese torpedo boats. Um, as the British newspaper headline said, when they had sunk a number of these trawlers, this enraged the British, as you can imagine. A British newspaper headline simply said, drunk again, we suppose. <laughs> but Britain and Russia did talk about war in, those, in that period. Uh, so the French and the British nearly fought, the British and the Russians nearly fought. But the war, as it eventually turned out, of course, was going to involve uh, different forces. But yes, you can look back into the Europe of pre-1914 and say, yes, there were tensions, there were arms races, there were competitions, there was economic rivalry, there was fear. Nations often behave, and their leaders often behave in, in foolish ways when they're afraid of something. In Berlin in 1914, the military was saying, if we don't fight the Russians now, we won't be able to fight them in 1917 because they're gaining strength so quickly. Very much the same sort of argument the Japanese militarists used before Pearl Harbor in 1941. But on the other hand, and this is why hindsight can be dangerous, if you look back at Europe in 1914, if you look hard enough, you can also see a lot of forces for peace. Europe was economically integrated and getting more economically integrated. It was moving towards greater movements of people, more tourism, more young people studying in each other's universities. Four cabinet ministers in the British government in 1914 had been educated in Germany, and this was not at all unusual, and a lot of Germans had been educated in Britain or in France. There were those who argued that Europe was now so economically interdependent that war wouldn't make any sense, and certainly among them were the bankers, who in desperation in the city of London in the summer of 1914 went to see the government and said, you can't go to war, it's going to cause all sorts of problems for us. So that you did get people pushing for peace or simply thinking war was improbable. And there was a very large middle-class peace movement which was arguing for other ways of settling disputes among nations than war. Arbitration was becoming something that many nations were actually beginning to use. There were a number of arbitrations where both sides agreed to be bound by the decision of a third party. And that number was increasing. Between 1794 and 1914, there was something like 370 international arbitrations and more than half of those were after 1890. And so you could, if you look back, see trends. You could see trends towards war, but you could also see trends toward peace. 
And my own view is that the First World War didn't have to break out. It was not doomed to happen. Europe was not on a, a path which it couldn't get off. But that what happened in the five weeks in the summer of 1914 actually was important, and that's where the individuals become very, very important. And there were three, I think, that you have to look at. And collectively, I think they make rather good argument against hereditary monarchy, or <laughs> at least hereditary monarchy with a great deal of power. Um, what you had in Austria-Hungary, that very powerful multinational empire at the heart of Europe, was Franz Joseph, who was old, who was sick, who was lonely. He had, had, as you probably know, miserable family life. His wife had left him, his only son and heir had committed suicide. He had not cared for his great-nephew. The Archduke had been killed in Sarajevo. In fact, he said rather chillingly, a higher power has restored an order I could not maintain. He didn't like his great-nephew, or his nephew, rather, sorry. And he was under real pressure from his hawks to do something. The head of his general staff, the chief of his general staff, was someone called Konrad von Hotzendorf, General Konrad von Hotzendorf, who had urged war on Serbia something like 40 times before 1914 in the previous 10 years. And so you have this lonely old man, not in good health, being pressured by his own hawks. You have to do something, he's being told. You have to do something because Austria-Hungary cannot take this affront from Serbia. We know that Serbia, and they didn't actually know, but they suspected, we know that Serbia was behind the assassination in Sarajevo on the 28th of June. We have to destroy Serbia because otherwise it's going to destroy Austria-Hungary. And so in the end, he caved in and he allowed the ultimatum to go to Serbia which was designed to be refused. It was, if you read it, it was something that no independent country could accept. Serbia was given 48 hours to respond to the ultimatum, and long before the response had come in, the German embassy, the Austrian embassy, rather, in Belgrade was already burning its papers and preparing to get on trains. So the Austrians wanted war, and the emperor went along, and then as things moved, as the Russians began to move, the emperor signed the mobilization order. It was put in front of him, and he signed it. In Germany... You had Wilhelm II, and Germany's role is crucial here because the Germans give Austria-Hungary what is called the blank check. Austria-Hungary goes to Germany and says, look, we're going to try and destroy Serbia. We fear you know, the Russians could come in, but we don't think they will. Wishful thinking played a big part in the catastrophe. We think that Russia probably won't come in, but we're going to do it anyway. We think we've got to destroy Serbia this time. And Kaiser Wilhelm says, go ahead, do what you want, we back you. And that was called the blank check. And it was the equivalent of a blank check, and his own government backed them. Now, Wilhelm was someone who was a difficult man. He was someone who came to the throne much too young. His father, who was much more sensible and much more liberal, only lived for three months as emperor. And then Wilhelm became emperor. He had had a very difficult childhood, as you probably know. He had an unhappy childhood. He was born in very difficult circumstances, and one of his arms was badly damaged. And he was always very sensitive about this. But he reacted by becoming extremely arrogant, vainglorious, boastful. He loved to be in the center of attention. He loved to talk about my generals. He loved the military. Now, don't draw any comparisons with the present day, <laughs> please. But um, you can. He was, and in fact, others have said this. I mean, if we want to draw comparisons, you can think of an obvious one, and we may come to him later. By 1914, he knew uneasily that his own generals were calling him the timid because he had actually backed down from war on previous occasions. He'd actually been quite sensible for him and had said, look, I don't think we're ready to go to war. This time, he didn't want to be seen by a coward, as a coward by his generals. And he said to a very close friend, 
this time I'm not backing down. I will not back down. And this is a man who had to decide whether or not to mobilize Germany. What began to happen as the crisis got worse is Russia began to make military moves. It wasn't yet a general mobilization, but they were clearly thinking they might have to do it. And so Wilhelm came under pressure from his generals to sign the mobilization order. And the German mobilization order was unlike every other mobilization order. It wasn't just getting the troops ready. It was getting the troops marching to and across the frontiers. The Germans' plan was brilliant. It was this wonderful, seamless thing that started with post office putting up notices in Germany, telegrams going out to offices, and ended with the conquest of Paris 60 days later. It was a seamless one. So once the Germans started to mobilize, it was going to be very difficult to stop this war machine rolling through. And Wilhelm actually resisted for a bit. And finally, his generals came to him and they said, look, we have to do it. We think the Russians are moving. And he said, all right, have it your own way, and signed it. He could have refused, and he didn't. He wasn't strong enough to. And then you have, of course, Nicholas II, in Russia, who was a very decent man in some ways, very kind to his family, um, good at chopping down trees. So was Wilhelm for some reason. They both loved chopping down trees and cutting up logs. He would have made, I once carelessly said in a small town in Britain, I said he would have made a good village postmaster. And someone in the audience took exception to that because it was the village postmaster. Well, it's an important job, but he wasn't up to being the Kaiser, the Tsar, rather, of all the Russias. And he, too, was put under pressure, and he also signed the mobilization order. So I think, at least in my mind, it's fairly clear that if it hadn't been for these three men, war could have been averted. It had been averted on previous occasions. Europe had had a series of crises. In fact, that was part of what contributed to the final catastrophe, because they had got through them. And they were complacent. They thought, well, it's just another crisis in the Balkans. We've already had three of those, four of those. We'll get through it. There'll be a lot of huffing and puffing, a bit of movements of troops, a bit of threatening, and then there'll be a conference of ambassadors and it will all be dealt with. And that's what Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, thought would happen in the summer of 1914. That's what a lot of people thought would happen. A lot of people went off on their summer holidays. They said, oh, it's just something in the Balkans again. We've had that. We've been there, we've done it. It's not going to make any difference. And this time it did make a difference. And one of the reasons I think it made a difference is because enough people had decided in key positions that they weren't going to back down. And so Europe, and it's a very short period, went from war, from peace to war in five weeks. And you can imagine if the crisis had been solved. It could have been solved. Sir Edward Grey tried desperately at the last moment to try to get it solved. Austria-Hungary didn't need to try and destroy Serbia. It could have made another decision. Russia could have decided not to back Serbia. Germany didn't have to give that blank check. And you can imagine another sort of outcome to that crisis of 1914. I think it really mattered in the final crisis for all the great forces, and of course they matter, but in the final crisis, I think it really mattered that those men were in power making those decisions which took Europe to war. And once in the war, of course, it was very, very difficult to back off. So I think those who are in power at particular times really matter. But it's not just being in powerful offices. Those who are there at a particular moment in history, I think, also make a difference. Uh, We had a lot of talk recently about the Reformation and Martin Luther. And I think without Martin Luther, the Reformation would have gone another way. He was, I don't know if any of you, I've just finished reading a biography of him, so it's much on my mind. He was not someone you'd want to hang out with. Um, Very difficult, very argumentative, liked to win every argument, um, would not listen to you if if, if he disagreed with you or felt... If you disagreed with him, he tended to feel that you were 
evil and um, probably should something pretty nasty should happen to you. Um, not a nice man, but he was the sort of person who was prepared to push it through right to the end. He was not prepared to compromise with the church. And there were a lot of people within the church at the time who recognized that there were things that needed to be reformed. A lot of what Luther was complaining about, the corruption in the church, the sale of pardons, these were things that people had been saying now for a number of years, and people in the church felt very strongly that reformation was needed. Luther, I think, pushed the reform to the breaking point. He was not prepared to accept the authority of the Pope. He was not prepared to accept the authority of the bishops. He was not prepared to remain within the church. You can imagine, I think, at least I can, a different outcome where Luther might have been more peaceable, more prepared to compromise, and you might have had a reformed church with different strands in it, which you had had, actually, for centuries. But I think Luther made a difference. I think Karl Marx made a difference. What Karl Marx did was take ideas that had been floating around in Europe. There were lots of socialist ideas. There were lots of ways about how the world could be made, ideas about how the world could be made better, lots of ideas about how to deal with the manifest inequalities and cruelties that were caused by the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. So lots of people were thinking about this, and lots of people were writing about it. But what Marx did is take these ideas and weave them into this enormously powerful story and he appeared to be scientific about it. And there was tremendous reverence for science in the 19th century because it seemed to be making such extraordinary advances. And what Marx said is, I understand how history works. I understand the mechanism. I understand that the underlying methods of production will change. The rest of society will therefore be affected by what they call the superstructure, and eventually society will change. And the mechanism through which it changes as these economic changes are taking place is class struggle. And so you get a bourgeoisie struggling against a feudal order. Eventually you will get a working class, a proletariat, struggling against the bourgeois order. This is the way history goes. We know this is the truth. I mean, I don't know how many of you have read or, or perhaps are reading now Marx, but it's very, very powerful. It's a very powerful view. And he writes with complete assurance that he knows everything, he knows how it's working, and he can see where it's going. And that makes it, I think, a force in the way that other socialist writings don't. Other socialist writings are beset by doubts. They, they're not sure that they're right. They, they won't predict the future. Marx predicts the future. And it was to be, of course, hugely powerful throughout the 20th century. And I think in some ways we're living with the consequences of that power. And so it's not just those who are in positions of authority who make a difference. I think it's also those who can sum up something at a particular moment. And you can say the same thing, of course, of religious leaders. I think when you look at the Buddha, you look at, Confu well, Confucius, I think, is, is perhaps not a religious leader. You, you, look at, um, you, look at, you look at Jesus, you look at Muhammad. What they did was take existing ideas and wove them into something that was enormously powerful and perhaps, again, had the good fortune to do it at a time when people were ready to listen to them, when the circumstances were such. And so I think religion is very important. In the 19th century, you can find plenty of examples of people who created new institutions, new worlds, new ideas. You have people who created countries. I think it's fair to say that without Bismarck, for example, in Germany, those German states would not have come together to create the modern nation of Germany in the same way, and it would not have been the same sort of Germany. The leading historian, in my view, of, of, of this period, Gordon Craig, says, yes, Germany would probably come into, have come into existence because there were strong forces pushing for a united German nation but not at that time, under those circumstances, and in that form, without Bismarck. And I think it was Bismarck's good fortune that he came along at a moment 
when the ruler of Prussia needed someone like him and was prepared to back him. What made Bismarck able to do what he did is that he had the complete backing of his king, and the king of Prussia was a considerable figure because Prussia was the most powerful, both economically and militarily, of all the various German states that came together to make Germany. And the king was prepared to let Bismarck do what he wanted, even when it meant making war. Um, it wasn't easy, and the king once said, it is not easy to be king under Bismarck. <laughs> when we come into the 20th century, and I'm not going to do all the biographies of the 20th century, but I would, I think, must say something, given that this is the year of the Russian Revolution, about both, about both Lenin and Stalin. And the more I read about the Russian Revolution, and there have been some wonderful books coming out recently, I think the more I think Lenin's role is absolutely key. Yes, it mattered that Russia had gone into the First World War, and yes, it mattered that the Russian regime, already shaky before the First World War, was now being shaken to pieces by the strains of fighting in that war. But there were a great many political forces in Russia, most of them with a lot more influence and power than the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks, Lenin's little party, was a tiny party. He was himself was in exile. He was sitting in Zurich on the other side of Europe. And the Bolsheviks had very little popular support. They were popular in a few unions, but their rivals, the social revolutionaries, were much more popular. And the Mensheviks, who had split with the Bolsheviks over various issues, were also much more popular. And I think it's really Lenin who makes the second stage of the Russian Revolution. The first stage comes when the Tsar is forced to abdicate in February 1917. And then there is a period of chaos as different political forces try to gather themselves. And of course, the Russians had had very little experience of constitutional government. And as the government mistakenly tries to keep Russia in the war, and war weariness grows in Russia, Lenin comes back. As you probably know, the German high command in what was to be one of the more counterproductive things they did, decided they would send or they would expedite Lenin's trip back to Russia, as they said, so that we will poison Russia. We see Lenin as, as carrying the plague, uh, type of plague, back to Russia. So they expedited Lenin's trip back. He arrived at the big station in St. Petersburg in the spring of 1917, and he defied the best advice of his own party, the Bolsheviks, and ignored all the other parties and said, we want peace immediately, Russia should get out of the war, and he came up with a brilliant slogan, peace, bread, land. And that is basically what a lot of Russians wanted. And he moved ruthlessly through this very complex world of revolutionary politics <coughs> until the Bolsheviks were in a position to carry out which, what was a coup d'etat in October 1917. They never got any degree of popular vote. They didn't have overwhelming support among the unions or among the organization called the Soviets, which was springing up, but Lenin was in a position to seize power and did so, and then he imposed his rule on Russia, and I think the fate of Russia could have been very, very different if it hadn't been for Lenin. I think he had the will, he had the determination, he had the ability to carry it through, and he was not beset by doubts. Often people who change the world aren't. Um, he was not beset, beset by doubts, and he had no feeling that he might be sacrificing people for the revolution. He thought this was something that was necessary. He had his eye fixed so firmly on the future that anyone in between simply could be dispensed with. And we now know a lot more about Lenin um, and how ruthless he absolutely was. And I think you can say very much the same thing about Stalin, who eventually succeeded Lenin after a complicated period in Russian politics, became the head of the Communist Party, as it now was, in 1927, and began to push Russia in a direction that he wanted to go. He wanted Russia to overcome its weakness, 
He wanted Russia to industrialize. And as far as he was concerned, the only way Russia could industrialize was to squeeze surplus funds out of the countryside. And that meant doing it at the point of the gun for Stalin. The farmers in Russia who had only just acquired their own individual pieces of land did not want to give up their surplus profits. They didn't want to be pushed to collectivize, which would give the government much more control. And Stalin did it by brutality, by mass murder, by calling in the army, by pushing people into the collectors, by sending them to Siberia if they disagree, or by allowing them to starve to death. And Kotkin, who I mentioned earlier, concludes that no one else would have done it. No one else would have persisted through the famines, through the visible unhappiness in the country. No one else would have persisted in the same way Stalin did. If you look at the other top communist leadership, they were prepared to see some measure of private property in the countryside for a very long time to come. And if you look at other ways that countries with communist leadership have industrialized, it hasn't had to be at the price that Russia paid. Deng Xiaoping had a very different route in China, and China today is, I think, showing the benefits of that very different route. And so I think, as you look through, again, perhaps the history of the 20th century, you see the importance of these people. And I think perhaps it reflects the nature of government and society in the 20th century, that we have moved in the direction of greater government control over society, which, of course, has become more feasible. It was much more difficult for a medieval king to exercise the sort of control that a Lenin, a Stalin, or a Hitler could over their societies, simply because they didn't have the technology to do it, and they didn't have the ways of reaching people. But thanks to modern technology, thanks to aircraft, thanks to communications, thanks to mass literacy, people in positions of power now had much greater levers for the manipulation and management of society. And the price that society has paid, of course, has been enormous. It's been estimated in Russia, but it's only an estimate, that maybe 20 million Russians died in the 1930s as a result of Stalin's policies. Perhaps twice that many died in China as a result of Mao's policies. And so I think to say that the person at the top doesn't matter, particularly in totalitarian societies, is simply to ignore what has actually happened in the 20th century. And I'd like to just perhaps say a couple of words about Hitler before I conclude, because again, I think Hitler makes a difference. I think no other Nazi leader would have behaved in quite the same way, and certainly none of the right-wing generals who welcomed the rise of Hitler, thinking, of course, foolishly that they could use him, would have behaved in the same way, because Germany had actually got everything it wanted, or had said it wanted, by 1938. It had wanted to undo what it called the chains of the Treaty of Versailles, which it had been obliged to sign at the end of the First World War. It had moved troops into the Rhineland, which it had not been allowed to do. It had built an air force, which had been forbidden under the Treaty of Versailles. It had increased its army, which had been forbidden under the Treaty of Versailles. It had built battleships, which had been forbidden of a certain size under the Treaty of Versailles. It had united with Austria, which had been forbidden under the Treaty of Versailles. And so the Treaty of Versailles no longer meant anything by 1938. And then, of course, at Munich, Hitler got the German-speaking lands of Czechoslovakia essentially dooming the shaky remnants of the Czech and Slovak state to insignificance and eventual amalgamation. And in that meeting at Munich, at the end of that meeting at Munich, when Hitler got everything wanted, when Germany increased its size enormously, he was not triumphant. He was not delighted. He was absolutely furious. He had wanted a war, and he was in a rage. He had, he had missed his war. And what really worried him was that the German people seemed relieved. They had celebrated in the streets. 
and this worried him. He said, there's something wrong. They haven't got the right warlike spirit. And he ordered Goebbels and others to make sure that they began to roll out the propaganda to make the Germans want a war, because that's what Hitler wanted. And he had said so all along. It's there in Mein Kampf. He thought war was the highest form of human activity. He thought the Germans, as a superior race, had to prove themselves by war. He said in a speech at Erlangen University in 1930, no people has, a, has more of a right to fight and gain control of the world than the Germans. He felt it was something Germans ought to do by their very nature. He was preparing a second book to accompany Mein Kampf, which he never published, and in it he envisaged a series of, war, of wars, each of which would prepare the way for the next one. And so Hitler wanted a war. He said of himself in 1936, he had complete confidence, as, so, as did Napoleon, as did Stalin, as did Lenin, that he was right. In a speech in 1936, he said, I go with the certainty of a sleepwalker along a path laid out for me by Providence. And he was prepared to take Germany along that path, even when it became clear that Germany was doomed. In 1945, as the Russians were advancing, the Soviet troops were advancing on Berlin, and as the Americans were advancing from the West, he had a final meeting in his bunker with Albert Speer, who had done so much to build the great Nazi monuments and had been his minister of war production. And he said to Speer, his last orders, I think, were to destroy what was left of the infrastructure, blow up the hydroelectric dams on the Rhine, and when Speer said, but if we do that, um, you know, the German people living along the Rhine will be flooded, and how will the German people survive without electricity and without an infrastructure? And Hitler replied, Germans don't deserve to survive. They have let me down. They do not deserve to survive. And so we, I think we have to take into account the nature of these people. Their psychology will not explain everything. What we always have to do is understand the time and the people in the time but I really do think, particularly perhaps in moments of turmoil when things are being changed, when societies are in upheaval, those who rise to the top and exercise enormous power really do determine the fates of millions. And so as we look today at the leadership we see, what are we seeing? Does it matter that Theresa May is Prime Minister of Britain? My view is it does, not as much as it would in other sorts of constitutions, other sorts of societies, other sorts of governments, but it matters that, in my view, she is unable to control her own Tory party. She is being pushed by the Brexiteers. I think that matters. Does it matter that Donald Trump is president of the United States? I think it does. I think Donald Trump has an enormous amount of power. Presidents of the United States do. So far, American institutions are constraining that power. The judges, the judiciary are constraining that power. Congress, in its own rather um, complicated way, is constraining that power. States are constraining that power. When Trump announced that he was pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, a number of states across the United States announced that they were going to continue to pay attention to those provisions, and, and that does make a difference. I think the press is constraining Donald Trump, but he still has an awful lot both of authority. He speaks as the President of the United States, and he has a capacity, I think, to undo things. He has the capacity to put certain things on the agenda and remove certain things from the agenda. And I think he has the capacity to affect the United States and the world. He is already affecting the position of the United States and the world. He's already affecting the position of other countries. Canada, at the moment, we're dealing with the whole threat by the Trump administration to get rid of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Association. 
and our foreign minister and the foreign minister of Mexico have a book club, and they give each other books of history. Um, and you will be quite what are they reading is quite interesting. I mean, they're quite interested in these decision points at which people take countries in one way or another. And I guess the other question we have with rulers like Donald Trump is once having tasted power, will they give it up willingly? And so I think appropriately I should close with a quotation again from Edmund Burke. Those who have once been intoxicated with power and have derived any kind of emolument from it, even though it be but for one year, never can willingly abandon it. They may be distressed in the midst of all their power, but they will never look to anything but power for their relief. Worrying words, I think, but rather opposite for today. Thank you.